through. Bingo! You are now listening to the facts. Welcome back to Straight Facts, a sports show that educates and entertains. I'm Jules Schmitz, accompanied by James Jackson, Jake Galley, and Crunch Numbers in the back. We got Stat Matt. This past week in sports, Raptors and small forward Pascal Siakam agreed to a four-year, $130 million max contract extension. Wizards and all-star guard Bradley Beal agreed to a two-year max contract extension. CC Sabathia officially announces his retirement from baseball. That one actually made me a little bit sad. Like, yeah, I, I hate the Yankees, but like I have ultimate respect hall. for CC. One hundred percent. Okay, one hundred percent. Sacramento Kings and guard Buddy Hield have agreed to a four-year, ninety-four million dollar contract extension with incentives that could reach one hundred six million dollars. To be honest, I didn't see that coming. I like I thought after he pretty much blasted the Kings that they were just going to move. He on called from four him. for ninety a disrespectful. But four for ninety four. On the other hand, <laughs> I think the incentives are with the one hundred six. With incentives, what right? Did it. Yep. Boston Celtics and forward Jalen Brown agree on a four year, one hundred fifteen million max contract extension. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is possibly the best thing to happen to the Sixers <laughs> in I don't know how long, long time since getting Joel Embiid. <laughs> yeah, since getting Al Horford. Yeah. Yeah. The Falcons trade wide receiver Mohamed Sanu to the Patriots for a second round pick. The Philadelphia Union won their first playoff game in their 10-year history, beating the New York Red Bulls 4-3. to You were at that game. I was there in the Sons of Ben. Uh, I did not have a ticket for that section. However, it was very fun to enjoy. I was waving the um, like the team colors, like they have it on a huge flag, and I was up in the back. I got handed the flag, and I was waving it, and I was really hyped until I realized <laughs> I was handed the flag because no one wants to carry to <laughs> the flag. So I was trying to hand it off to people, Rookie. and they're like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this flag? I'm wave it, dog. Do for die. Wave it. Uh, I was waving it for a while. I ended up dropping it. Here's a flag. <laughs> You really, you really got punked. Like you really got sun. I just can't picture you doing that. <laughs> it was great. It was a lot of fun for like two minutes. It's like a sitcom. Yeah, like you really got uh, sun. Here's a fact straight at you. Danny Green had 28 points last night, which is the most ever in a Lakers player debut. I mean, that it's surprising that that's the most ever in a Lakers player debut. Um, but when you think about it, most of the Lakers, when they're having their first game or draft picks, I mean, the best. One besides, you know, Danny Green is like LeBron James and Shaq. Other than that, Shaq. they've been really, they've been really young and not really popping off for 28 points as a rookie in your first game. With that being said, Danny Green absolutely snapped last night. The previous record before this 28 points was Kareem with 27. So that shows you the elite company that he's amongst. Right, right and there. understand this is that Danny Green had 28, and they still lost by 10 against a Clippers team that didn't have Paul George. That's what tell you about with, the Clippers. With one with one starter in double figures, that was Kawhi. The I only starter in double Danny figures. Danny Green did a really great job on defense as, as best he could, yeah. marking Kawhi too. He held him to 4-12 and 12 when he was on the floor marking him. And I think yeah. that, I'm not sure the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it definitely jumped when he got off the court. Yeah, and, absolutely. And he might be familiar with Kawhi. It's probably someone that he <clears throat> tangled with in practice last year a bit. But, and, and when the 2013 and 2014 Oh yeah, good point. Good point teams, yeah. So he's pretty familiar, but I don't know. This game didn't tell me as much about the Lakers as it did about the Clippers, as really? we saw 
I mean, just their bet. Like, I had questions about how they were going to handle bigs and what their rotation was going to be in terms of Ivaka Zubak. Um, and Montrez. how much he, yeah, he was going to play. Montrez ended mm. up playing the most minutes, I think, out of anyone, 38 minutes. Um, He's going to have to anchor down the middle for you. And then obviously Lou Will played a bunch too, but even without Paul George, Kawhi is still in Terminator, Michael Jordan-esque mode, uh, and mm. they, they were they were phenomenal. And it was funny because they got off to a really slow start. I mean, the Lakers came out the gate with, I believe, a 13-2 to run to really start the game. Kawhi didn't get his first bucket until like a minute 30 left in the first quarter. So it still shows you that wherever Kawhi goes, just that kind of mentality of slow and steady wins the race follows him. He brought it to Toronto where they had one of the slowest paces in the NBA last year. One of the most, one of the slowest, you know, up and down rates of the floor ended up winning a championship. He brings that to the Clippers who you think about the Clippers before Kawhi, a bunch of these junkyard dogs who are moving at a million miles a minute. Kawhi gets there and it really shows you the value of like slowing things down. You can let them jump out to a crazy pace. There's 60 minutes of this game. Like they're going to have to slow down eventually and when they do, they play our game and Kawhi brings that. I think his breakthrough was clearly in the second quarter um with his performance going 7 and 8 with totaling 16 points in that quarter, assisting his team in a total of 40 mm-hmm. points in all, which was absolutely crazy. Yeah, Third quarter only on the court for seven minutes, but the fourth quarter, my favorite part of the whole Kawhi Knight debut with um, his new team was blocking Dwight Howard's dunk. That was a pretty good <laughs> that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was pretty cool. It's, I mean, it's a Kawhi-esque play. I, I will say another thing that I was impressed with is Patrick Beverly's impact on the game, despite being really absent on offense, like not a good, he's one for yeah. seven, two points, he's plus 13. He don't care about the offensive side of the ball. He's plus 13, he had 10 rebounds. He's a guard. <laughs> he had 10 rebounds. What the hell is he doing getting point, 10 rebounds? Bo- most of the game, he's the smallest player on the floor. If not the entire game, he's the smallest player on the floor. And what I think is also really unique about the Clippers is people think that Kawhi is going to be the defensive anchor. Paul George is going to be the defensive anchor. Montrez Harrell will be the defensive anchor. Look at this team. Patrick Beverly is the, the defensive anchor of this team. Patrick Beverly is what sets the tone for them. You ask like how they're going to play bigs. They they don't have to worry about how they're going to play guards because Patrick Beverly will shut down you're the best guard on the opposing team. Sometimes the best player. He had multiple defensive plays last night where he took LeBron out of it. Like, Patrick Beverly is what gets this team going on the defensive end, and I think that's something that people are not prepared for. You're prepared for Kawhi and Paul George to do Speaking it. Speaking of Pat Beverly, did you notice what Doc did last night with his lineup? He really only played three true guards, mm-hmm. being Pat Beverly being one, uh, <clears throat> Schmidt being the other, and mm-hmm. Williams rotating the wings in and out um, with the bigger guys. And I, I I don't know if that was just because they were playing the Lakers, but I, I thought it worked in their favor. Well, I, I don't see why they wouldn't do Landry that again. Landry played big minutes. Big yeah, minutes. one which, you know, you trade Tobias Harris, and he's pretty much the number one piece coming back. you got to expect that he's going to be featured on that team, at least um, in terms of his expectations of, mm-hmm. of what they want him to do. I don't expect him to be the star there, but... Um, he a game winner against the Warriors in the playoffs last year. Right. And, as a rookie. Yeah. That in the last, like, 20 seconds, he had a three. It's nuts. And I think if overall you look at this team up and down, not in terms of the players and personnel, but in terms of the attitude, especially mm. on the defensive end of the floor, <clears throat> it's a little reminiscent of, like, late 2000s Celtics under Doc, mm-hmm. where they have guys who love get dogs, who Dog love getting, getting after, after you on the defensive end. Um, that helps... 
defensively and then also specifically with Kawhi, how they're going to use him. Um, I like Nick Nurse as a coach, but I think we can agree Doc Rivers is a different pedigree. Um, and, and hopefully he can really open up this MVP-level Kawhi in the regular season. Look, yeah. I thought he did a great job covering uh uh, the Lakers' finest, uh, yeah. LeBron and AD last night. Yeah, he did done. a great job marking and them. LeBron did pop off in, a, in the third quarter a little bit. That's something that I was going to allude to a little bit later. But I think another hallmark of a Doc Rivers team is Doc is okay with the matchup that presents itself in the first team. Where Doc is worried about beating you is when that end of first quarter, beginning of second quarter run, carrying in the halftime when the bench units really take over. Doc Rivers' team have always been very good at their bench units. The the Celtics, the early Clippers with Blake and CP, even when they had such a good lineup, they had a really good bench. And now they have a really good bench with the Clippers. The bench outscored the Lakers bench 60-19 to in that game. That's where that hurts you. And I think the fact that the Lakers had such a good third quarter helped them because that's where the Clippers are going to kill you is when they bring that second unit of Lou Williams and Landry Shamit uh, and and really let, I think, Paul George is going to captain that second unit. When that happens, I think a lot of teams are going to have a lot of trouble because now you have people who are just as productive as first unit players on a second unit. That's what Doc Rivers is able to do as a coach. Yeah, and I think... Um, I, just just the amount of lineups that they can throw at you, the the mixing of players and the staggering of minutes that they can do. The Clippers are going to be tough. That's really the reason why they're a lot of people's finals pick. But if you look at the other side of things with the Lakers, I think that Anthony did. He shot eight for twenty one, which I don't think. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's not his best game. He ended up for having, Anthony Davis. That's that's very subpar. I don't, he I don't ended up having twenty five, ten, and five, two blocks and a steal. So he had a good game. He was only plus three, but overall a pretty good game. Mm. I just I, and I don't want to overreact to the first game of the year. No, first dude, that's big what game we do. of the year. But, but what fun is it if we don't overreact to the first he, game of the year? True. Let's he do looked it. uncomfortable on the block, getting fed so much, and and um, maybe that won't always be the case. I think. Maybe they, they made a point thinking, okay, we're going to have an advantage down low. And I think the Clippers did a good job at masking maybe right. some of the deficiencies down low. But I, well, I, I, I mean, don't know if that's going When you have work. LeBron James coming out and telling the whole world, I want the offense to run through Anthony Davis, what is Doc Rivers going to do? Okay, well, I think we're going to kill Anthony Davis. <laughs> that's just a, a little inkling I have. But when I watched that team, too, uh, in the third quarter when they had such a good quarter, the end of it looked really bad. They had six turnovers in the third quarter, right? Three of them were LeBron James's fault. All three of those turnovers came when he tried to force the ball to Anthony Davis in bad spots. And I think LeBron really wants this offense to run through AD. I think he can be really good off the ball. But I think naturally when you're LeBron James, the ball gravitates toward you. It's going to run through you, especially late in the shot clock. So you can't force it to people. So that's both a blessing and a curse, and I'll tell you why. The Lakers still need another guard to be equipped with a ball handling mm-hmm. to leverage um themselves in their shots the entire team in particular lebron exactly what you're saying who everyone relies on got worn down quick handling the ball and making too many key decisions which he doesn't leads he to wants to be poor off decision ball. he wants to be off ball you can see he wants yeah, to be off but ball. it leads to too much poor decision making on the execution mm-hmm. besides danny green they really don't have another defensive wing capable enough to take on a Kawhi or anybody else in that matter so they need to start looking for people like that yeah I agree. I agree. I, I think Kuzma being out, not being able to have that shot creator who is off ball, um, did kind of hamper the Lakers a little bit. 
in this game. I don't I don't know exactly how long Kuzma's going to be out. Uh, I think it was a pretty substantial injury. That I mean, he... he was practicing before the game. He was practicing pregame. Right. We had full mobility. I don't think it's going to be crazy long. And, I mean, four weeks at an NBA season isn't detrimental. You know what I mean? Four weeks in an NFL season is a quarter of the season. Four weeks in an NBA season is like... Some people haven't even started paying attention to the NBA yet. And with just like AD in general, too, we talked about this last episode, just him not being overshadowed by LeBron, I think it's just going to take a couple games for the two of them to get used to their dynamic. And if you will, okay, LeBron's the bulk of the uh, offensive defense, whatever you you may have you. He just needs to adapt. Right, and look, here's the thing. They looked really good in the preseason. It looked like they were, you know, they were gelling and meshing. I don't know why that was so hard for me to get out. Gelling and meshing um, in the preseason. But it kind of sucks when you're taking that preseason feel and now the first game of the season, you're going to play the L.A. Clippers, who is going to be the best defensive team in the NBA, one of the best defensive teams in the NBA, and they're taking this game personally. Like the, the Clippers where you have a bunch of people, a bunch of dogs, as we as we talked about, who take the defensive side of the ball personally and were, was not going to let the Lakers get off to a hot start on their watch. Yeah, and um, I, it's kind of interesting with, the coaching situation that's going on because like how far do the Lakers have to slide until we start talking about okay they're going to make a change from Frank Vogel they have I think two or three former head coaches um on their squad Jason uh, Lionel Hollins I think as well (laughs) so like they got people right there ready is it just going to be like a chopping block like okay Vogel it's 16 games we're like just above 500 you're gone yeah next I mean you got options like you got people waiting in line like if you're not going to get the job done we have people right there for you I mean it puts a lot of pressure on Frank Vogel but at this point you got to look at the stage of LeBron James's career at this point I don't have time to play around with a couple of years for you if you're not getting it done and we've seen on many teams LeBron James is very quick you know, to force that decision. If you're not getting it done, he fired. He got David Blatt and Ty Lue fired midseason. Right. So, like, if you're not getting it done, you out and we're going to get someone in here who can get it done. Frank Vogel, look, to me, looks very disposable. Right. So that is L.A. And obviously Kawhi came out. Kawhi and the Clippers came out on yeah. top. Um, we're going to do something that First Take didn't do. Right. Let's not talk about Kawhi's old team. Like, as you said, the First State did not talk about the Pelicans versus Raptors, which actually was a pretty good game. Went into Went overtime. overtime. Uh, Raptors ended up taking that one. I think they won by eight points against a Zion-less Pelicans. What were your takeaways? Uh, well, one, something I w- did not expect to see so early in the season is Pascal Siakam, Pascal Siakam looked like an all-star that man in eight. game one. The ring leader up there now. Yeah. But is that a good thing? Is, I think so. Is that a good thing? I, I like to me, he doesn't, a lot. He, he doesn't seem like someone who can carry. There's a difference between carrying a team in a series, carrying a team in a game. To carry a team through a season, those 34-point games can't be anomalies. Those 34-point games have to be consistent. You have to be the person who the ball goes goes to and through game in and game out. I just don't know if, if Siakam has that level to him. I'm not saying he's a bad player. Look, there are plenty of all-stars who don't have that level and that capability to be able to carry, especially a team who just won a championship. Yeah. Who really impressed me last night, too? Fred Van Fleet. Yeah. I thought he really stepped up to the challenge. I, I mean, I wasn't expecting him to do it the first game. With no more Kawhi, he, you know, he stepped up, finished with 34 points as well, five rebounds and seven assists. He's, you can see that he's making smarter reads in the pick and rolls, and his defense looked really good as well. Uh, what do you guys think? I, I completely agree, and I think in part is, you know, I talked about earlier how wherever Kawhi goes, he brings that, you know, kind of level of play with him. I think the Raptors are still 
are, are you know still have the Kawhi culture in them are still trying to run the game that Kawhi kind of brought to their city and brought a championship to with him and I think they're trying to do it even without him focusing on the defensive side of the ball not running as you know running up and down the floor not trying to keep up with people running a slower pace of offense getting good shots like they're they do the same things that Kawhi brought them to, and I think if they do that, they got a good chance of still being a, a really good team. For sure, and, you know, I think there's someone who is slept on a little bit in the East. I know Lowry and Ibaka before the game were vocal and saying that they feel like they're being overlooked. you still hate Kyle Lowry? No, I don't I don't hate Kyle. I, I don't think I really ever hated Kyle Lowry. Oh, we got to bring think- up that right Right, Jewel. Jake, come on, come on. Jake, I have what, a whole, I, I have a whole clip on social media that Jake. you dogging Kyle Lowry. Get out of here. Clip, <laughs> clip, episodes. We can pull up episodes of you bashing this man. I was bashing him probably. Look, he's getting here. all right in shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I now am I remember the. Like yeah, how much there he's getting. I'm just now remembering. You thought he was going to skate by, and we weren't going to remember. He's four fifteen. All right, you want me to bash Kyle Lowry? I think that I think that he's now going to play a experienced veteran role where before he was kind of relied on as like the star of the team before Kawhi it was him and DeRozan and it's like well, we're he's gonna, never been the man we're he's gonna have to rely on well, you could argue that I mean maybe DeRozan was like the man DeRozan but he's still the, the point guard of, of those teams but regardless I, th- I think that um him and the entire team their devotion to making the right play yeah. it was like I, I have the ball I draw a man, okay, my job, and I think someone said this on the broadcast, my job's now done, time to move the ball. Okay, there's not much selfish basketball going on, which is surprising when you have two guys who score 34, but... But I don't think they have the ability to play selfish ISO basketball. They don't have got, like, in spurts and in situations, yeah, you gotta be able to, you're an NBA player, you gotta be able to go get me a bucket in certain situations, but the offense is not predicated on isolation, pick and roll basketball, it's moving pieces, moving the basketball, and trying to make it as tough on the defense as possible to get comfortable. And I think if the Raptors continue to do that, look, Kawhi was a blessing to them. If they continue to do that, uh, I still think they have a good chance of, you know, maybe not making a finals run, but not being a latter Eastern Conference team as many people thought they were going to be when they lost Kawhi. Yeah, and I think my takeaway about mainly Siakam, like he he's the one who really impressed me, 34-18 and 18, 34, 18 and 5, is super impressive. That's all around. He could be like a poor man's Giannis in the way that he's used in terms of he's going to be matched up against some bigger guys. He's got somewhat of a handle. He has somewhat of a shot, and when he gets inside, he can finish through people, around people. Uh, he's going to be really important for them um, Look, I mean, going when, down the stretch here. When the playoffs happened last year, we all three of us were on the show saying that Pascal Siakam was one of the X factors of that Raptors team. It's just different now. It's it's different when you have to step up and be that be that guy, not just a guy who can contribute, but be that guy on a night in and night out basis. I I worry if Siakam's going to be able to do that very consistently. Speaking of stepping up, uh, let's look on the flip side: the Pelicans without mm-hmm. Zion playing. What yeah. do you guys think? Um, I think there there were there was a lot of good and a lot of bad that we saw from the Pelicans mm-hmm. uh, last night. Um, the good thing we saw is I was really impressed with Brandon Ingram, the mm-hmm. way he played, um, the way he was able to step up. And you talk about being a go-to guy. I think Brandon Ingram has to be that for the Pelicans. At the very least, when Zion's not there, even when Zion comes back, I think from a veteran standpoint, Brandon Ingram's going to be have to be that go-to guy to go get them a bucket. Josh Hart looked good, too. Josh Hart ended up being 4 of 9, 15 points. He was only a minus 1. Um, which a lot the the entire starting unit um, aside from Lon, uh, from Lonzo Ball was minus twelve or worse. 
um, hey, yeah. for the Pelicans. And then also someone who I really liked and talked about on this podcast in the past, uh, and Keel Alexander Walker, he... Look, he's not afraid to to push is is what we found got, out. This man got in the game. <laughs> he yeah, he's not <laughs> he afraid the first of the ball. two seconds of the shot clock <laughs> just pulled I think like a 25 footer. Like was just not no, not gun shy. He uh, he was 1 for 10 from the field, 1 for 7 from 3. There was a couple ugly plays uh with him driving to the basket and just missing layups and look, I mean it, it's good and bad. I like that He's showing initiative. He's not afraid uh, to get involved in the offense, but he's also not afraid to keep going when he is one for or over. <laughs> yeah. Like that, we call that the Russell Westbrook mentality. Yeah, there's which a is good and bad. They're good and bad. <laughs> I like that. Right. I like that you're headstrong. I don't like that when you realize you got passed the ball here, son. But yeah, I think what was really interesting, Jewel, you mentioned the lineups that the Clippers and Lakers were throwing out last night. The lineups that the Pelicans were throwing out last night, you think of where Zion is going to be inserted in many of those lineups. Like, they looked small, like small, small, to the point where Zion might be running the five for most of that, for most of the Pelicans' uh, possessions. Like, do you think that'll actually work? Uh, I, like, who knows? I really wish we got to see him. I think that he has the potential in today's NBA to hold his own a, a, as the main interior big, if you want to call him that, um, I, I think that the I, what was the name Melly the guy who they were running out there as I guess their de facto center. Um, Okafor got some run too. Big right, Okafor got some run as their five. Favors was the starter, the biggest player in the starting lineup. He looked meh. Six point seven rebounds. He looked Derek. Fav- that's Derek Favors. Right. Melly is more of he, he was, looked so Derek Favors. It was disgusting. Right. He was he's Derek Favors as you said, but <laughs> Melly was four or five from three. He's not necessarily like your prototypical center rebounding big. So I think when Zion comes back, he'll be the guy mainly patrolling the paint, which is a good thing for him because he's going to need that area both on offense and defense to kind of fit in. I think he can really do a lot on defense right from the jump, but on offense, um, a lot of his points, especially early, are going to be from dunks and layups. So you want the lane clear. You want him being the guy who's operating. And I also think it's going to cause a lot of matchup problems for the other team. You're going to have to go. You can't stay big when the Pelicans go that small. They're going to be way too quick for you on the floor, especially when they up pace and they have players who operate very good in transition. Lonzo Ball, um, Josh Hart, Zion Williamson, obviously. Even even Brandon Ingram. They all all operate. J.J. Redick might be like the worst transition player on the team, which is fine because if if a full court... If a full full court stalls, now you have the best, one of the best three-point shooters in the league is as your trailer for a kick-out three. It actually is actually what you want in in the transition so you're gonna have to go small against the pelicans and it's just gonna create very very big matchup problems and i think that's where they're gonna be able to exploit some situations so from that standpoint i I didn't mind it it was rough when you don't have zion in there but i think they're trying to get everybody used to where they're going to be when zion comes in and you can kind of just plug and chug and go so you know, it's a lot to be seen from this Pelicans team, but I don't think it was bad. Look, you took the defending champions to overtime in your first game. That in itself is impressive. Yeah, agreed. All right, shifting over to the MLB. Before last night, teams that have had a week off before the World Series are 1-7 in the Fall Classic. That one team being the 2008 Phillies. Oh, in the arms <laughs> of the TBT, right? Yeah. All right. The Nationals became the second team to do it. What are your reactions to game one last night? Um, I, I I am still in awe of the Nationals. I'm in disbelief. Like, I'm really in disbelief 
of what they're be, what they're able to pull off what they've been doing through this entire postseason. It's just I still cannot believe they're a really good hitting team though. You have to give them credit to an extent. I hate to say it. They remind me of the 08 Phillies to be honest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, that's what I'm saying. They were. They are now. They are when it matters. Exactly. (laughs) They turn it on, and in baseball, we see this all the time. Where the hot team, they have good pieces, especially timely hitting. Pitching is important, but in the in the postseason, timely hitting, especially against good pitching, which we saw Garrett Cole finally lose a game. I going back however long. um, It's like 25 starts. Yeah. Since he, May, he hasn't lost a game. Yeah, like, like crazy. Yeah. So he he finally gets touched up a little bit. Um, and the one thing that that I noticed is AJ Hinch said that Cole. Yeah, well, after the game. Oh well. You know, hopefully we win a few games and we can we'll get back to him in uh in game five. Well, when you in have game five. Well, when you have I, the only thing I can think of, it is a little surprising because you might want to get him back out on the mound. But the only thing that I can think of is. When you have a team that is that is hitting the ball so well as the Nationals, especially they hit so well against Garrett Cole, do you really want to throw him back out there on short rest? I, and you, maybe not, but I think it'll also be determined by how they're doing. Mm-hmm. If it's Game Four and they're down three zero, yeah, you need to guess win. what? He's going out there. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. But in the same sense, it's not like you don't have a Verlander, a Granky. It's not like you don't have a great pitching rotation to keep you afloat until it gets there. Um, but I think for the rest of the series, by the way, game one was last night for full disclosure. Game two is tonight. Um, it comes on at, I believe, at 8 o'clock. So right after we're done uh, shooting this episode. So we're going to talk about the series kind of as a whole and not mm-hmm. really game one and game two. Right. And you know what? You you mentioned they do have those other guys. And I think it'll be really important with Verlander now coming onto the mound um, he's a guy who's been there before. Garrett Cole, not so much. Verlander's going to have to come out and give them a total ace performance, which is very capable. Um, you know, it's within his abilities to do that. Uh, this is obviously, goes without saying, going to be a huge game for them. Yeah. Dude, like before this, I would have run away. Said the Astros. We, I mean, we, my pick has been the Astros since they got Granky. My pick has been the Astros. We put, so we, we put. I'm stick to it. Since like May, your pick has been the Astros. Yeah. Um, we put out a Twitter poll last night, and I believe like 63 percent of our of our followers said the Astros. Um, and then it was quickly turned on its head when the Nationals, when Juan Soto broke that game open. Um. If anyone was wondering why the Nationals seemed kind of okay when Bryce Harper didn't re-sign with them, Juan Soto is the reason. Like, you look at Juan Soto is 20 years old. He hasn't even turned 21 yet. He's, I believe, the third youngest player in MLB history Mm -hmm. to back clean up in a World Series. It was his very first World Series game, and this man didn't look shook at all. Not only did he didn't look shook, he looked like a veteran out there. His, His approach at the plate was was great that double he had was with two strikes and he shortened up that swing and took it the other way and got a double off the wall big two-run double to give him a three-run lead i believe in this in the sixth or seventh inning like juan soto he was is, a beast for them he's absolute beast uh, and they knew it two years ago when they got him for a guy who is 20 years old we're just talking about the regular season to put up 34 home runs 110 rbis quiet. back 280 quiet i mean it was very quiet too and last year he's batting 290 so like he is Really one of the stars of the MLB, uh, especially after this series, win or lose for the Nationals. And I I think it was also good. Another um, guy who went long in that game was Ryan Zimmerman. Mm. Uh, 
Good for, good for him. That's, uh, good it, for him. it really is, among all their players, if I had to feel good about one of those guys um, potentially winning a World Series. I'm a Phillies fan, so like I don't, you know, no love loss for the Nationals, but Ryan Zimmerman is a guy who I respect a lot as a player and I think deserves that out of any of them. Well, Ryan Zimmerman and Jose Altuve for their respective teams are very, you know, very congruent, very similar players. They both got to their, their organizations when they were very bad um, and Nationals didn't start yet. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to mean. Like Ryan Zimmerman has been there, been there, and even when they went to to Washington, they were really bad, and he was the first one there. They've stayed there, they've groomed the team around them, and now they're really important players on very good teams. So it's just uh, the same reason people were so happy for Jose Altuve and when he got his World Series and when he got his shine. The same reason that people are really happy for Ryan Zimmerman. Like you said, I'm a Phillies fan, so I kind of don't like the success that the Nationals are having, but if it had to happen to someone, right. I'm, I'm okay that it's right. Ryan Zimmerman. And I, I think this is, again, this is my, uh, out of the three of us, a third bias coming out just being a Phillies fan as well. I do want the Astros to pull through, but you know what they Absolutely. need to stop doing? They need to stop oh, well, loading the bases and oh, then striking out. How many times did that happen They're last terrible night? with runnings in scoring position. That's bad, dude. How many times did that happen it's, last it's night? It's I, I believe they left ten, they left ten runners on last yep. night, which is not surprising for the Astros. They're actually one of the worst teams in the MLB this season with converting with runners in scoring position, which is really weird. And you talked about timely hits. That's all that it is. You can have they actually had more hits than the Nationals last night, but it's timely hits. They had I believe I think eleven hits, and when you only have three runs off of that or four runs, that points to the fact that you left a lot of people on base. You need to be able to to drive those runners in. Um, and the, the the Astros just they haven't they didn't do that last night they haven't done that for most of the season and when you're coming up with such a hot team like the Nationals if you don't convert those runs you're gonna find yourself on the losing end of a lot of games and, and it was like a big game obviously it's the first game and all these games are, are going to be big and I don't want to overuse that but Scherzer only goes five innings mm. I mean to win that game you're using five pitchers more than five pitchers I mean like to win that game in the way that they won it against Garrett Cole of all people like if that's what I'm saying the no. fact that like they're hot coming into it if this doesn't even put you over the top I, I don't know, but, I don't know. Like, but that's what I also say is I think a lot of things happened last night in that game that don't normally happen and I don't think we should expect to happen for a full series like Scherzer only going five like the Nationals using five plus pitchers and still winning the game like I don't think the Nationals can do that through the whole series and if you look at how the Nationals dealt with game one they dealt with game one as if it was an elimination game. Like, I don't care about game two. I don't care about game three. I don't give a shit about game four. I need to, we need to win every game. We need to do whatever it takes to win that individual game. That's what the Nationals did well, so last remember, night. Remember, the Astros lost 7 nothing game one against the Yankees. Like, they're not going to be rattled at all. No. Right, and they've been here before. I mean, that, you know. They were down 1-0 to the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and speaking of the one-game mentality, I think I, I was listening to the post-game sound, and it was Adam Eaton like, was talking, he's like, yeah, we take it one game at a time, and then he like, was, like, struggling to, I don't know if it was an act, to, like, he was like, who's starting in game two for that? I can't even, like, see, I'm, I take it one game at a time. Like, I don't know if that was, like, a joke, but, you know. Yeah, Verlander, both, might, both. Verlander might have some chin music right. for <laughs> Back him up a little <laughs> yeah, bit off the plate. Verlander might have some chin music, but uh, if you look at, talk about that, that pitching matchup, that's what one of the things that we were all talking about off-camera coming in is who has that pitching advantage because if you look at both of these teams, both of their starting pitching rotations are, um, like, immaculate, especially how they've been performing in the playoffs. Um, 
And I think the tip of the hat has to go to the Astros for me personally. Nothing taking away from the Nationals. Their pitching has been doing great, but I think the Nash- the Astros pitching has been just that good in the postseason. Yeah, and when you I mean when you have the top two guys in ERA in the AL I and th- strikeouts, I, right? I, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what? That's pretty sick. I think he struck out six and seven innings, something like that. Yes. Some, like, it, it's funny. Garrett Cole got touched up. But it might be a little off. Garrett, right. Cole still had a good, yeah. Garrett Cole had a performance for the playoffs that many pitchers would have loved to have. Yeah, it's true. And it'll be intriguing because, you know, now looking at, to Verlander, um, he gave up more home runs than any other pitcher in the MLB during the regular and season. the Nationals are hot right now. But granted... The MLB has dejuiced the ball, it seems. I think I read an article. There's less home runs now by far in terms of um, the the rate at which they're being hit. So who knows what's actually going on with the MLB baseball itself. But we'll see how that plays out. I think Verlander ends up, goes out, wins this game um, tonight. But I guess we'll see. I mean, the reason why I say the Astros have that pitching advantage is because of the teams, the opposing teams that they're facing. If you look at the best pitches for the Nationals, Scherzer and Strasburg, they do a lot of their work on strikeouts. I mean, they're both amongst the top of the NL in the regular season and strikeout counts. And the Astros were the hardest team to strike out in the regular season uh, in terms of AL teams. They struck out, I think it was uh, like 100 or something like that, 100, a couple hundred times less than the next hardest team to strike out they're just that good they don't strike out often um and games won by the nationals this season max scherzer had 9.2 strikeouts per game strasburg had 8.9 strikeouts per game like they're they're going for nine plus nine ten eleven plus strikeouts per game and you can't do that against the astros they didn't strike out last night either they didn't they didn't convert hits but they didn't strike out and uh, another interesting angle that to look at is when you look at the lineups careers versus the other opposing pitchers i'm looking at it right now houston versus strasburg no one has more than five at bats against altuve he's two five against strasburg that's the most at bats when you look at washington's lineup against verlander eaton is 31 at bats cabrera has 76 uh suzuki is 42 um and there are some guys who haven't faced him but I just think that the the small things are what's going to determine That's these baseball. games. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at something like that, it, it's a little bit of an eye-opener. Uh, but, again, I, I just – the feeling that I have right now is Verlander yeah. comes up and plays big. Well, the Astros, it's funny. That's what I keep saying. A lot of things happen in game one that I don't think are going to normally happen. The, the Astros de- got what they wanted. They got to the Nationals' bullpen. If you look at the two bullpens, the Astros have the clear advantage in the bullpen – um, so the Nationals are going to want their pitchers to go deep. That doesn't speak to their longevity of a series. But the Astros got to the Nationals' bullpen and still wasn't able to do anything. And, like, they even brought Patrick Corbin out the bullpen to pitch an inning. That's going to be their game three starter. Like, they are <laughs> they are going game by game. Adam Eaton said it. They're going game by game. We're winning this game. I don't care about the next game. Um, so if you're if you're the Nationals, uh, that you have to be very wary of that, which is, it's just weird to me. Like, that's what the Astros wanted. They wanted to get to the Nationals bullpen. They got there and just still weren't able to to, to take the lead. So now we're going to transition to our bullish or bullshit segment. Uh, again, for those of you who are unaware, we're referencing the stock market here. When you have confidence in a stock, you are feeling bullish. So we're going to determine if these stocks are bullish or bullshit. Okay, okay, okay. Number one, Dak Prescott's chance of getting the contract extension he is requesting. Look, 
Let me go first, okay? Before you start jumping, you got all, a lot to say. <laughs> jumping all over Dak Prescott. It was funny because I remember when he initially came out and requested this, me and you sat here and, looked, and laughed at laughed at the man. Yeah. I think I think his chance of getting his contract, I'm bullish about it. I'm bullish. I'm going bullish. Um because of now, if he can put these consecutive games together like he had against the Eagles, he's worth every penny that he's asking for. Um, but I think if you get Dak Prescott this contract now, you don't have to worry about paying him for a good four or five year stretch. And look, you're you're, you're not maybe not paying Dak Prescott to be like the best statistical quarterback in the league, but he showed that he's confident. He showed that he could be a leader of that offense, and that is what you're paying for. Uh- I'm bullish solely for the fact wow. that I think that he will get it just because they don't have any other choice. Jerry Jones wants to give him the contract. But, like, here, here, here's my question, Jerry. Are you going to win a Super Bowl paying Dak Prescott $40 million? Are you? You're going to have to build the rest of the team paying Dak Prescott $40 million. They have a lot of vital pieces of their team locked up. I guess you're going to eventually have to pay Jalen Smith while Dak is under that contract. You're going to have to pay Leighton Vander Esch while Dak is under that contract. I don't know. I think he'll get the contract. We'll see how big it is. I wouldn't be shocked at offensive, this point if they give him the offense, most money in quarterback offensive history. Offensive-driven league. I think you're worried about your quarterback before you're worried about your linebackers. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'd have to agree with you all. Uh, the Cowboys are going to do anything to keep him. He's proven himself to be far too valuable. It's very unlikely that the Cowboys will find somebody better. And if they were to take that route, they definitely have to give away too many assets that they already have, and I don't think that's quite the ideal for move for them at this point. Uh, moving on to number two, Oklahoma's chances of making the college football playoff. I'm bullish about that, too. Um, if you look at the four teams that are in front of them right now, they currently sit fifth in the AP poll. You got Alabama number one, LSU two, Ohio State three, and Clemson four. All four of those teams have really, really tough games. So does Oklahoma. Oklahoma has to go to Baylor, has to play Iowa State two, two ranked teams. But Alabama and LSU have to play each other, which the loser that most likely gets knocked out of the top four. Ohio State still has to play Penn State. Clemson still has to play Wake Forest, who's a very good football team right now. And all is Oklahoma has to have Oklahoma wins the games are supposed to they land themselves in the top four right there yeah i'm bullish solely because i I mean i've said on the show before i'm a huge fan of jalen hurts and what he's doing i'm a huge fan of lincoln riley and um the work that he's done in consecutive years with his quarterbacks and with his teams um and for all the reasons that you just said, I just think that they're a really good bet right now. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, this is shaping up to be one of their most well-rounded squads they've had in a really long time. And I don't see why they wouldn't be a caliber contender. They entered the season as a favorite to win. I strongly believe that still stands. Uh, number three, Zion Williamson's chance of winning Rookie of the Year after missing the first six weeks of the season. Um, I Like, this is a really tough one to gauge because... I think if he comes back and is everything that he's expected to be, play in the fence. twenty-eight and bullish four. Bullish or bullshit? No, I think galley. I'm bullish. I'm bullish. I think that he's still going to win. This is how optimistic are you? I, I'm. I'm still bullish about it. Like if I had to bet, I think right now John Morant's the betting favorite. Now, um, I was telling you guys earlier though, in terms of betting. Uh, I searched out all over the place. I was calling casinos trying to get a line on uh, Matisse Thibel for Rookie Jake, of the Year. Zion Williamson is who we are talking about right I, now. No, no, I'm just saying about who's going to win Rookie of the Year. I think in terms and of... Matisse Thibel came out your mouth. If you're looking at odds, like, he has good odds for his actual chances of winning. If he ends up the sixth man, you know, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. No, no, let, let's, let's get back on track. Like, track let's get back on track. Jesus. He's going to be defensive Jesus. rookie. Best defensive rookie. So. Keep going. 
Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go bullshit. Actually, sorry, Zion. Um, but we, you're gonna have other rookies who are gonna jump out the gate firing. A John Morant, a Tyler Hero, maybe an R.J. Barrett. And I think the first six weeks of your rookie campaign is is gonna be huge and pivotal, especially when you have other people on your team who are gonna come in and try to gel themselves and try to get acclimated. You're gonna come in and now you're gonna throw that out of balance a little bit. We talked already about how the Pelicans have a lot of moving pieces going on with all their new additions. When Zion comes back in he's going to be the focal point of that offense and I can I think it could be for worse I just have trouble he's not gonna have a bad rookie season but I just don't think his chances of rookie of the year right now aren't good those six weeks are going to be pivotal yeah look I'm calling bullshit on this too he's expected to miss 68 weeks post-surgery leaving him missing around 30 games Mm -hmm. um that to me too that doesn't really say he's deserving just because the other guys are playing longer as well. 30 so. games is significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah is that, good... that's, that's a chunk of change right yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, number four, Tua's chances of winning a Heisman. Bullshit. Sorry. Sorry, Tua. Um, he's already banged up right now. The ankle on that leg a week or is, two. Is, giving him, is giving him problems. Um, and when you have people like Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, and I'm glad Justin Fields is finally getting the shine that he deserves. He's been snapping. Those three should be your Heisman frontrunners right now. I just don't... Tua, Tua's not going to get it. You're right. not going to get it this year. Sorry. And it's the same uh, argument as you said for Zion. I just don't think Burrow can win if he loses to Tua. Because that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. It doesn't that had to head the head the head the head matchup matter. Which means I don't think he can sell. And that. you know I'm but I like Fields. I'm I'm a Hertz yeah. guy as well. Uh people like Fields, people like Burroughs. And low key, Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State, the yeah. running back. Yeah. He has uh, 1,250 or 65 yards and 15 touch uh, rushing touchdowns so far. Like he is running the shit out of the ball. Uh so it'll be interesting to see. You never know what can happen. So but you're a bullshit? I'm bullshit, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm right along the lines of you guys as well. It's unlikely, but still up for debate. So I'm calling some bullshit on that, just for the fact that there are better contenders out there. Uh, Missing a week in college football for a Heisman contention, for a Heisman race, is, like, detrimental. Right, absolutely detrimental. Uh, All right, now we're shifting over to the countdown, number five. Number five is the number of consecutive World Series games that George Springer has homered in. That's nuts. It is nuts because he was struggling mightily through the rest of the playoffs. And it's like when the World Series comes, of switch flips uh, for George Springer. And he was the best player the Astros had last night. So good on him. Number four. The number of postseason wins the Nationals have with Scherzer starting this year. Before this year... They had never won a postseason game that Scherzer pitched in. That, that blows my mind. That doesn't seem like it makes a whole bunch of sense. He's a, he's he's another guy like beyond Zimmerman in terms of Nationals who like make me kind of want to root for them. I really like Scherzer. I like the demeanor. He, he, he kind of reminds me a little bit more like a more psychotic Roy Halladay. Rest in peace. But Tigers had him and Verlander on the same team. Didn't win a World Series. Yeah, and Miggy and Miggy and Prince Fielder. Dear. <laughs> oh my god. Number three. The number of pick sixes Russell Wilson has thrown since the start of 2018. Get this. This is the company he's in with that. Jameis Winston, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Josh Rosen are the only players to have more in that span. Russ. That's odd. Russ. Because and he he's I think P, I don't know if he is still, but he's he was PFF's top graded quarterback. Well that last week was his first right, interception. He, he it happened his... to be a pick six, but like it was his first interception of the season. Yeah. He, uh, only so. when he turns the ball over, he don't turn the ball over much, but when <laughs> he does, bad. it gets taken to the crib. Number two. 
the number of players in Raptors history to record 30 points, 15 rebounds, and five assists in a game. Vince Carter and Pascal Siaka, man, that's nuts. That is really All crazy. These crazy. All, All these Vince countdowns have been good. Yeah. All these countdowns have that, been that's really nuts. crazy. I like Pascal, man. I'm a big Pascal guy. I think that he has a lot of potential, and I'm glad to see he he's another guy who got paid, too. Yeah, hey, good. Bring it down to number one. Number one, the number of kickers to make a 60-plus yard field goal this season. Brett Mayer of the Cowboys, <laughs> who's made two. Um... Launching, launching them, Jones. He also did he make a sixty-plus yarder last year or the year Against before? Against the Eagles, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that hurts, don't it? Oh, he's a good kicker. I, 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 there's only been one time that a kicker has really hurt me. Matt Bryant, and that'll be Matt Bryant when Matt he Bryant, smashed baby. a sixty-yarder when I was <laughs> At just that a time, child. NFL record, right? It yeah, was an we, NFL record at I that think time. We, had, we couldn't have been more older than eight, nine years old. Yeah, like I remember Brian Westbrook had ran in like a 30-plus yard screen for a touchdown to put them up. Broke a bunch of tackles. Yeah, it was too. nuts, and then Bryant trots out. But yeah, okay, good good for him, man. I mean, kickers are kickers, and I never hold ill will against them unless he's on my team. I was about to say, one. what? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone hold, I hold ill will against kickers because yeah. none of my kickers are good. Uh, but we're almost out of time, but we can get to some shots up at the buzzer. Julie, have anything to say at the buzzer? I do. Do you see this pimple on my forehead right here? I do now. Your point now. It grew a couple inches over the course Mount of the Blanish last 40 there, huh? to 50 minutes. You know why? Because I haven't been mentally preparing for the 76ers game. Get me the hell out of the studio. <laughs> Go Sixers. 10-9-8, 76ers. Let's bring it home tonight, boys. Yeah, they're probably tipping off like literally right now. Yeah, I gotta get out of here. Um, gotta get out of here. tips. So we're I'm about like Jewel eight minutes us, from Jewel killing us to get out of here. Uh, that really hurt me because we have one of our best episodes right now. Jewel can't <laughs> wait to get out the freaking studio. Um, the only thing I have to say is... Uh, obviously, like we, we said throughout the episode, like I don't really have a super big rooting interest, but the stuff that came out about the Astros staffer, I don't want to get too much into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really like know the full story behind it. He seems like a pretty deranged guy shouting at female reporters, DV stuff. Um, bad look. Yeah, it's definitely a really bad look, and especially with all the statements that the Astros are doing, you easily could have swept this under the rug until yeah. after the World Series. Now you leave people hoping, you know, you as an uh, organization are hoping people are paying attention to your loss to take, uh, you know, attention away from this situation. So we'll see what becomes of it, but I think you should probably lose it his job. It amazes me that people in such high-level situations have such bad, like, PR management. Like, the, like there's a time and a place, never a time and a place like to yell at a female reporter or really any reporter, but... It's a time and a place to take the narrative from your team. Not important, but Ozuna blew the save. Right. Yeah. Blew the save saying, yeah, I like, love Ozuna. Um, That's how you know the dude's deranged. Yeah, were well, you not watching the game? The uh, <laughs> only thing I have to say at the buzzer, uh, I come to this episode with a little bit of a heavy heart. Uh, I found out earlier this week that my older cousin, Sean, passed with complications to diabetes. Uh, I uh, Thank you. I know it's something that, that really hurt my mom and the rest of my family. Uh, my family's been through a little bit this year. It's the second passing in my family. So uh, I said just to say, hey, you know, make sure you tell all your loved ones that you love them. Don't take anyone in this world for granted. And uh, Sean, I miss you. RIP. Uh, you and Nuna up there. Um, you know, I just, you know, a little bit, little bit of a heavy heart. I miss him, and I love him. But uh, that's it for this episode of Straight Facts. Dude, it was a really good one. Big ups to Greg Barron, Kyle Sobieski, and Stat Matt Robinson. Behind the camera from my partner, Jules Schmitz. It's been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. To my main man, Jake Galley, who, God, please go back on that Matisse Thibault take. I am James Jackson, and everything except that has been the facts. Straight up. Go Sixers! Woo!